Okay, thank you. <clears throat> so let me um, address a couple of the questions that came up during the break, the informal break, and a question from our internet um, uh, colleagues as well. Um, the question that came up on the internet was, um, do the changes, and we haven't actually talked about the structural change in the brain, do they, uh, do they get shaped by culture? <clears throat> so in our Center for Culture, Brain, and Development, um, what we've been doing over the last 10 years has been studying how culture shapes the structure of the brain. And one of our sections that we did was we studied adolescence. And in every culture that's been studied on the planet, um, adolescents actually do, do two things. They push away from parents and either literally try to associate with others outside their, uh, their birth parents in every culture, um, and they start doing things in different ways. So they start associating more with peers rather than just parents, uh, and they start doing things different ways. It can be subtle. So like if you're in a culture where they're weaving from the bottom up, you decide you're going to weave from the top down. You know, that's your teenage revolt. Um, or it can be not so subtle. In most cultures, there's also a rite of passage uh, that identifies this change. And so it's different for males and females, but there's this rite of passage that for males anyway often involves danger uh, and showing that you can handle that. So, so, so the question is, are the studies I'm about to talk about about the structural changes in the brain that have, have been done mostly in the United States, would they be different if we went in this age period to, let's say, Papua New Guinea and could put those adolescents in a brain scan? Or would they be different? And our center suggests they would absolutely be different. No one's brought a scanner to Papua New Guinea um, to do that, but you, you could do that. And that would be a really interesting thing to do. So these studies are based on modern American culture. That's for sure. So let's go back in time, not just to American culture, but even to European cultures and other cultures that have been documented. One thing we know that's kind of a surprise is that the adolescent period, which is usually um, initiated with puberty, the onset of sexual maturation, that's something you could visibly note and, and literally document. Um, Puberty had its onset, believe it or not, around 15 or 16 years of age. This shocks everyone. Everyone always fights back and says, no, in the Jewish tradition it was 13. But actually, no. When you look at the science of it, it's older. Um, now, this is really an interesting finding, especially when you add to that that females having uh, their onset of uh, menses around 15 or 16 years of age by around 18 years of age or so, would be actually settling down and starting a family. So adolescence was about two years of age. It started much later, and adult responsibility of raising a family was about two years later. And in males, it would be around three to four years. Um, they would be a little bit later. So this adolescent period was a lot shorter. One thing that we don't know the reason for this, but it's been documented, is that puberty is starting earlier and earlier and earlier. And it looks like one of the theories is it's, uh, keep on wanting to bless you, but everyone's still blessed. So it relates to nutrition, but we don't know if it's that simple. We just don't know. So now, you know, girls are beginning their periods around 12, 11, some 10, some 9. You know, so it's getting younger and younger, and it is shaped by culture for sure. Um, but the adolescent period seems to be extending way into the mid-20s. So it's at least a dozen years, if not more, this 
period that we're calling adolescence. So this is just to say that what 200 years ago was a very short two to four year period is now a dozen or more years. So that's, a, that's actually a, a big, big change. Um, <clears throat> the other thing uh, to note in terms of this question about culture is that, as I mentioned earlier, adolescence is found in most mammals. So it's not just a human invention. And you say, why do you need to leave home? Well, one of the theories is that you, for a species to survive, there has to be the generation of diversity of genes. You've got to get away from people you're related to that you're going to mate with. It's that simple. So if nature didn't have that programmed into our nervous systems, we would actually become inbred and we would die as a species. So the species that didn't have this push uh, had a problem. Uh, and so this is one of the basic thoughts. It's not that complicated. Um, from a psychological point of view, you've got to move away, so you have to get ready to go. Now, one of the myths is taking that statement to the extreme. Okay, you move from, from parents to peers. At the extreme, people say, oh, to be an adolescent, you've got to push away from all adults. Well, that's not true. You, you need to keep adults in your life, even your parents. And the kids who do that actually do better in life. Um, and one of the things that we have in other cultures that we don't have so commonly in, in American culture are non-parental adults that are trustworthy that you can turn to to be a part of your life. So even if we say it's a natural push against parents, that doesn't mean you should get rid of all adults in your life. So who's trustworthy that you can have in your life that's built into the structure of our society? Not many people. Now, you could say, what about teachers? Well, teachers are evaluating you and judging you and giving you a grade and comparing you to your, your, your other peers. So that's not really the kind of person we're looking for. We're looking for someone who gives you acceptance and guidance, who's a mentor, basically. You know, Michael Mead talks beautifully about mentorship uh, in his works and rites of passage. And this loss of kind of the hero's journey of moving from childhood to adulthood through this very important, not in period of immaturity, but a period of necessary transition uh, that we're talking about. So we're going to now address the brain model we have by looking at actually what goes on in this brain. We're going to take it from a bird's eye view um, to going down to the to micro uh, structures to, so we can understand it. Yes? Mm -hmm. Let me repeat so everyone can hear. So about, uh, you appreciate the, the, the discussion about culture and, and what does culture look like? So the, the culture of relational poverty, meaning, can you? Right, so I have to repeat everything you're saying. So, so the idea is relational poverty being all sorts of things about trauma that's happened that may have even going across generations. Mm -hmm. Yep, and community violence and family issues, sure. Right. Brain, 
Yeah, so what's the shape of the traumatized brain community? And Right. So that these old things can feed back on each other. Absolutely. You know, and there's all sorts of cultural issues and, and societal issues, uh, like the disparity between the wealthy and the poor, the disenfranchisement of people based on race, uh, the history of trauma, uh, history of enslavement, uh, all sorts of things. And, the, you know, even just uh, the idea of child abuse being passed on through the generations. There's, there's many, many, many layers. And this is a very important topic. What we're trying to do is lay the groundwork of what we know from a foundation of that, and then you can see how that all fits together. If you look at our, our work at CBD, at the Center for Culture, Brain, and Development, we try, because it's a research institution, to try to tease apart how you would know which factors are doing what. And that's, you know, that's a multi-layered issue on research. From just the practical point of view, of course, it's very true. We were just in South Africa, and um, with the history of apartheid, and not just the history of apartheid, but the history of slavery in Africa, the continent of Africa, even before the Europeans got into that process, there was enslavement in Africa by Africans. Uh, and when you, if, if you want to read an amazing book that kind of pulls that apart, it's called A Biography of Africa. Um, it's just an amazing, uh, by John Reeder, an amazing uh, discussion of exactly what you're talking about uh, starting from the beginning of the continent, actually, and its metamorphosis and the whole development of different animals there and the, uh, of our evolution. Because as you probably know, all human beings on the planet come from Africa. Uh, and when you look at the history in the last 100,000 years of, of human evolution, culturally, in Africa and outside of Africa, you can really understand it in some amazingly powerful ways. So that would be a, a good book to read about that. But I'm, there's tons of questions, um, and so here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to go forward. Let me take one question because your hand was up. But what I'm going to try to do is make sure that we have time for questions uh, at periodic times because I want to make sure we get through the foundations. But yes? The teachers can be those adults for these. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a very nice edit, that teachers can provide that attachment uh, security for, for kids and, and, a, and a source of attunement, absolutely, especially young, in younger ages, absolutely.
piece right before the break, um, you also kind of, when you said that uh, adolescents are turning to peers instead of parents in times of crisis, and um, that also, um, for me, feels a little bit possibly like another destructive myth that could take root depending on how people hear that. Because as a parent of a 20-year-old and a 23-year-old, they, my kids certainly turned to peers for some things. Um, and I went through a, a hurt place when that seemed to be apparent. However, as a parent, I felt like it was my responsibility to um, participate in how our relationship was changing and the way I saw them and noticed them and related to them and was in involved and present in their lives so I could see the signs of crisis unfolding and be able to take up, take advantage in a positive way of an opportunity to, to be a support for them. And in some of their crises, they did turn to me. But it came from me, I believe, being able to um, notice and um, be um, physically and uh, emotionally and psychologically available um, for them to feel comfortable and say, please turn to me and for me to provide those opportunities. Right, absolutely. So the statement is uh, in, in this participant's uh, experience being able to change your own internal state so you can be present for your adolescents who are in their 20s was very important for them so they could, you could be available to them so they could turn to you when they need to, especially if there was a crisis. So absolutely, I, I, this is not about saying your kids are divorcing you when they become adolescents. But if you compare a child when they're distressed who doesn't go to a peer to what happens in an adolescent. Adolescents absolutely have more peers in their life who serve an attachment role than a child does. That statement in no way implies you are no longer part of their life. In fact, in the Brainstorm book, the whole thing is about how the adult can understand the adolescent in a deep way to make sure that the lines of communication stay open across the lifespan, not just at the end of adolescence, but always, because we are in our kids' relationships forever. But the parents who feel threatened by the fact that adolescence is about turning more to peers and parents, that happens. That, that statement doesn't mean you never go to your parents, you never talk to your parents. doesn't mean that at all. It means that there's a shift. And some parents find that offensive. And they want to still be in the role of the sole provider of nurturing. And that becomes a serious problem for an adolescent trying to just be themselves. And there's a natural push to this. So, so I really think your, your comments are really important so that everybody hear the, the, um, the breadth of them that, that to say the phrase, adolescents go toward peers, not just to parents, doesn't mean they never go to parents. Doesn't mean that whatsoever. And even saying that teachers um, can be those roles, but we need, to, and we need to bring something else in our society besides the school setting doesn't mean that teachers can't provide important attachment roles. They do. But I think we have to do more than that as a society. I think we need to provide some kind of mentorship beyond a teacher who's got you know, 20, 30 kids in a classroom, but actually have a one-on-one -on -one relationship that's safe. You know, I mean, our dear friend just made the, um, the uh, documentary called Happy Valley you know, on what happened in Penn State. 
you know, and the last thing we want to do is create mentorship situations that are unsafe. So this is, this is not an easy thing to propose. Like, let's have relationships outside a classroom between an adolescent and adults. That, that's fraught with potential danger. Yes? Let me repeat those words of wisdom. So you're saying that when you found a mentor in your life, you've experienced, if I'm, if I'm saying this right, you've experienced that they treat you like a person, not just like a child. Yeah. Yeah. And, that they, and what's that like for you when you get treated like a person? It just, like, it feels better and, like, I want to tell you more about myself than, like... And it feels better and you want to tell them more about yourself? Yeah, and so when you're younger, you're scared to say something. But now, as, how old are you now? Um, 18. 18. So now, you know, as an 18-year-old, you're finding your, your, like, not here, not there, but you're finding a way to actually present yourself that feels stronger. That's great. And, you know, this, this question is for all of us to consider. Because if there was a way where a teacher who's burdened with classroom after classroom after classroom, 30 kids here, 30 kids there, 30 kids there, can be a mentor to a kid, that would be great. But for most teachers... That would be an overwhelming task to ask them to do, especially you know if they start doing that and then 10 kids in each class want to do that. I don't know how that teacher would do that. So I, I believe in teachers so much. You know, my, my, most of my relatives are, are public school teachers, and I really believe they perform an essential role in our society. But I don't want to burden them more with this cultural conversation about adolescence where we say, hey, we need rites of passage and we need mentors that perform trustworthy roles for people to be treated like their people. Uh, I, I, we, I mean, we, we need to think that through. Maybe, maybe it could be teachers, but wow, I don't want to burden them even more than they're already burdened. Yes? Well, I, you, know, just to, you know, what strikes me is that how you are perceiving, how you are feeling the adolescent in your classroom is a moment where they can experience that feeling seen Mm, beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a shift. So the statement it's making is even a teacher who, let's say, would take on this change in attitude would um, would be able to actually impart some of this empowerment without it being the time-consuming thing that a mentorship thing. Yeah. And and absolutely. And the, I don't know how we name that, but let's just talk about like a shift in perception, or how you beautifully said it. So these are all great comments, and I really appreciate the reflectiveness about it. Let's go through some of the remodeling in the brain, and then at lunch, I invite you to all have conversations with each other about how you might think about how the cultural conversation around adolescence might be changed. And what I'm hoping to do is, because we're going to have lunch in about 20 minutes, um, is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to aim to offer you something about what's called the essence of adolescence so that you'll be able to reflect on it with each other at lunch and then when we come back uh, at, at 1.30 and I'll come back at around 1.10 to do some book signing if you want um, and at 1.30 we'll start up again and then we're going to really focus in on this essence and, and how in your personal life with yourself whether you're an adolescent or an adult in your relational life that is with others 
other adults, other adolescents, adolescent to adult, or in the larger culture, how we can creatively think together about how to do this. Because this, this has got to be a grassroots effort. This isn't some guy giving a talk or a book that says it. This has got to be something everyone kind of embodies to, to make it their own. So, so let's, go, let's go through just the remodeling issue, and then we'll end this next blast, as my dear friend John O'Donohue used to call this a, a blast of information, and then we'll, we'll break for lunch. So what happens in the brain is um, you've got this structure we talked about. Let's just talk about what comprises the brain. The basic cell of the brain is the neuron, which is a long cell, which connects to other neurons at a synaptic connection, and a chemical is released between the two that allows them to communicate with each other. And the way this brain functions is ions flow in and out of the long length, an axon is a membrane, and that's like an electrical charge going down the axon. And a chemical is released that either activates or deactivates the downstream neuron, and then that fires that neuron off or not. And that's what we call neural firing. This is, excuse me one second. There we go. So. This process of neural firing is shaped by synaptic connections. Synapses form the architecture of the brain, how these neurons are interconnected to each other. Two things influence that, genes and experience. That's what you need to know, genes and experience. So when we talk about the brainstem being fully formed pretty much at birth, genes influence that. Genes are the deoxyribonucleic acid, the DNA that we inherit from our mother and our father, and that have information that determine how different parts of the body will be structured. We also know that there are things called epigenetic controls that influence not only the, uh, well, that influence how genes will be turned into proteins, or what's called gene expression. So you need to know, we also know, as we've learned in the last maybe eight years, that epigenetic controls of gene expression are inherited. And the reason that becomes important, and it was, relates to your question about trauma in culture, is that unlike genes, which are not themselves changed by experience at all, the way biological evolution happens is by genes mutating either randomly or by radiation or whatever happens, and that the conditions that those genes allow can either be favorable, favorable or not, and that's what Darwin was talking about. But now, in the last decade we've learned, the last eight years we've refined these amazing new discoveries, which is that the experiences you have in your life, including trauma, but including other things too, shape these molecules that control gene expression, that depending on the timing of it, can become embedded in your sperm and your egg, your eggs, and then you can pass on what you acquired by experience. This was never known before. So in terms of a culture, let's say, of slavery, or a culture of genocide, or a culture of abuse, um, it isn't just the narrative that's in that or the experience of it. You may be inheriting the epigenetic changes that were acquired from experience. This can be something as basic as your grandparents were in a famine, so they had to ad adjust in a certain way so that you actually 
acquire the epigenetic changes that they had to acquire during a famine. So your body is ready to be in a famine, but you're not in a famine. So you eat and you hold on to everything you eat. So then you get big. And then when you get big, your adipose cells want you to eat more. So you eat more and more. And pretty soon you have diabetes. Not because of anything you did, but because of the famine that your great grandparents went through. And that's been shown in Sweden when they followed hundreds of years of history that famine and great-grandparents, depending on the timing of the famine and when the mother may have been pregnant during the famine, and that got in, it's all, the timing is really important, but you can show that the risk for diabetes is related to the exposure of someone to a famine because insulin, it's a, a whole long thing. But So it can be that basic. Other studies have shown that the ability to respond to stress, for example, if your grandparents were in the Holocaust, can be acquired through epigenetic changes in you. So even though you never met your grandparents, you can have difficulty with stress, so you're prone to anxiety and calming yourself because of what was acquired, depending on the timing of that experience, in a concentration camp. Now, no one's done the study on slavery, but it would make sense that if your great-great-grandparents were slaves, that there would be epigenetic changes that might challenge you in all sorts of ways. So to answer your question about that, we need to understand that it's not only the narratives you get and the meaning and the way people behave, but it's actually these epigenetic changes alter the, your physiology for insulin metabolism or alter your physiology literally for how the brain is structured. This is stuff, if I said this 10 years ago, uh, scientists would say you're out of your mind. And so this is just 10 years, this is only the last decade. It's, um, and so we're just learning about this stuff. Um, it's, it's unbelievable, but really, really, really important. Um, even, even, in the case of, um, even in the case of child abuse, there have now been studies by Michael Meany up at McGill University in, uh, in Quebec, Montreal, where you can show that the experience of child abuse induces changes in the brain's epigenetic regulation of gene expression, areas that allow you to respond to stress. So that not only is your structure of your brain changed, but the very genes that would allow you to develop outside of that become also challenged. So these are just, I'm only adding this because we're talking about brain development. Um, and we're talking about the basic neurons and how experience is determined by genes, epigenetic changes, and direct in experience can alter the connections in the brain. So basically in childhood, you've, you've come into the world through what you've, you've inherited genetically and epigenetically, those things can shape your temperament. You then have attachment, which is going to change the way the limbic area begins to connect with the cortex and relate to the brainstem. And the overarching thing we can say from these 36 textbooks that I told you about is the following thing. When you have secure attachment, it develops something in the brain called integration. So integration of the brain is the linking of differentiated parts. And when you've linked differentiated parts to each other, what you have is coordination and balance. Basically, integration is the origin of harmony. And I am an acronym addict. You're going to get your first acronym for the day. But the word FACES, flexible, F, adaptive, A, coherent means fluidly dynamic, is C, is for coherent, E is energized and S is stable. This faces flow is the way I describe an integrated system. Can you say that again? 
I can't remember what I said. No. <laughs> Flexible, adaptive, coherent, energized, and stable. So ultimately, in, in Parenting from the Inside Out, what Mary Hartzell and I did was translate the developing mind, which basically says the best thing you can offer your child is to develop integration inside your own nervous system. And that book is basically a manual for integrating your own life. So are you saying that's related to adolescence too? Yeah, we're going to get to that soon. So, so that's the first step. In Whole Brain Child, what Tina Bryson and I do is offer that how do you help your child develop an integrated brain? And we have step-by-step -step ways to do that because integration, I believe, is the basis of health. So anything you can do to develop integration, both internally and interpersonally, what does interpersonal integration look like? It's where you honor differences and promote linkages. So one way to summarize all relationships that are good for you is they're integrative. Your relationship with your mom or dad or other caregivers, that honor differences, promote linkages, those are good for you. Relationships with friends that honor differences, promote linkages, those are good for you. Relationships with a lover that you honor differences, promote linkages, those are good for you. Relationships with a teacher, relationships with therapists. Integration is the base of healthy relational functioning where you're sharing energy and information flow. And here's the weird and unbelievably simple conclusion from 20 years of studying this thing. Integrative relationships stimulate neuronal activation and growth, that's your second acronym, SNAG, stimulate neuronal activation and growth of the integrative fibers of the brain. That took 20 years to figure that out. Integrative relationships promote the growth of integrative fibers. Why do we care about integrative fibers? When you have integration in the brain, you have what's called regulation. Regulation <clears throat> means Coordination and balance of a function. You can regulate attention. You can regulate emotion called affect regulation. You can regulate behavior. You can regulate thought. You can regulate relationships. So regulation just means coordination and balance. And all regulation, we have not been able to find a single exception to this, all regulation depends on integration. So integration is a good thing. So basically, this brain early on is being shaped by genetics and epigenetic factors that can challenge or support integration as a growth process. Secure attachment in the first 18 to 24 months of life, we believe, stimulates the growth of these integrative fibers. If you experience trauma or abuse, sadly, the research shows you'll have impairment to the integrative fibers. Those integrative fibers, just to name them, include the hippocampus in your limbic area, the corpus callosum that connects the left and the right, and the prefrontal cortex, which is right behind your forehead. And let's take our hand models out so you can see what I'm talking about. In the hand model, this would be the middle two fingernails. Lift it up and put it back down. And what do you notice is it unique about the position of the prefrontal cortex? Overlap. It overlaps everything, exactly. It overlaps everything. It's a good way to think about it. It's connecting the cortex to the limbic area to the brainstem, to the body, and even, as you'll see in a moment, to the social input from other brains, if you want to just stay in brain terms. Those are five differentiated sources of energy and information flow that are coordinated and balanced by the prefrontal region. Let's name them again. Do it with me. Cortex, limbic area, brainstem, body, and social world. So if you want yourself or you want your adolescent or you want anyone 
to be able to have a face's flow, to be, live in harmony, you want to develop these functions, right? Okay, so these integrated fibers are growing in childhood. And if you wanted to think about childhood, and I know people will probably have a disagreement with this, but the simplest way of describing a child's relationship to learning in the world is they're a sponge. They're ready to soak in new things, learn new things, exciting things, bring in things, but they just soak in, soak in, soak in, as they should. We have a very complex social hierarchy we live in. It's, we're a very complicated social species. And so we have this long period, 12 years, where this kid is soaking in stuff. I mean, just think about what percentage of life that is that you're a child. That's a long percentage, right? Okay, adolescence is not the same as that. Instead of being a sponge, here's the thing that shocked everybody. The sponge-like quality of the child brain can be described very simply as, I'm gonna grow new synaptic connections and I'm gonna grow new neurons as much as I can. I like music, I like dance, I like art, I like you know, sports, I like English, I like math, I like everything. Not that you like everything, but you soak everything in. Right, you soak it in. Adolescence, instead of being a sponge, where you're a generalist, for the most part, adolescence is where you're going to start becoming a specialist. And to do this, the brain does something shocking. And so I want to say this with a lot of respect to all the adolescents in the room, because it sounds kind of weird, but we've all been through it, so you're not alone. The brain starts selectively letting go of the synapses that you've developed in childhood in a process called pruning. You know, in the garden, you have a nice tree that's growing. You say, well, it's kind of woolly. I think I'll cut it around like this and cut it that way. You know, the pruning process, right? So it starts to prune itself, and it starts to prune itself based on a use-it-or-lose-it principle. So if you never pick up a musical instrument, the neurons that were there in your childhood ready to learn a musical instrument, your brain will say, well, you don't really need that. You're not doing that. Whittles those away. If you spend all your time on a video game and not engaging with people so much, it'll activate those video playing games and not have much about having conversations with people. Right? So you want to think about in your adolescence what systems you want to develop. And that's something you can choose to do. You don't have to have anyone tell you to do it. You can choose to do that. So the pruning is one thing that happens, especially in the beginning of adolescence, the first half of adolescence, and that shocked everyone. Who would think that the brain would start to carve itself down? That's kind of, no one predicted that. But it, it's there in a big way. Not only do you lose synaptic connections, you actually lose neurons. The number of neurons you have as you move through adolescence and adulthood is less than you had in childhood. That's, I mean, that's like weird. Now, why is that happening? Well, because you have to understand the second process that happens. As you're becoming specializing, as you prune away the things you don't use, you're doing something else that's amazing, which is you're laying down something called myelin. And myelin is this really healthy, connecting, conducting substance that allows the neurons that are staying there to work 3,000 times faster 
than unmyelinated neurons. Now, how do you do that? You make the speed at which these, uh, these ions are going in and out 100 times faster, and you make the resting period 30 times shorter. So 30 times 100 is 3,000. So like when you practice something and develop a skill, like playing an instrument, or if, let's say you want to go to the Olympics and you, you're doing these wacky turns, and you're watching TV and you watch the Olympics and you say, I could never do that. Well, you haven't laid down the myelin that lets you flip like that. So those athletes are 3,000 times more capable of flipping like that. They may not be able to do what you've been practicing, but they can do what they're doing. So this adolescent period is a period of pruning, where you're carving things away, and myelinating, where you're taking the things that are remaining and making them work more efficiently. A way of summarizing that is you are differentiating areas of the brain and then linking them, and that is the definition of integration. So if you had to summarize what is happening during the second dozen years of life, you can say the brain is becoming more integrated, which is a really good thing. It's a really great thing. And the cool thing about realizing that adolescence is about integration and not about raging hormones is you can do something about integration. So every exercise you have in the gray pages of your book help you integrate your brain more. How you focus attention streams energy through the brain and allows you to keep neurons alive and not prune, allows you to even grow new neurons, allows you to grow new neural connections, and allows you to lay down myelin. So the cool thing about this change in our cultural conversation is you can actually do something yourself personally or do something with your friends or do something with your family or do something in your classroom to actually engage people to grow more integration in their brains. This is what we could do. Now, pruning and myelination, how do we summarize that? It's summarized in one word, it's called remodeling. So the adolescent brain from 12 to 24 is remodeling itself. It's building on the foundation of childhood and it's not starting new, it's pruning and myelinating so that it's a form of remodeling. Now, of course, if you've ever been to a remodeling site, like a building that's being remodeled, it doesn't always work optimally. Sometimes you have to turn the plumbing off, and sometimes you've got to turn the electricity off, and that's cool. It's just a necessary part of remodeling. But if you realize that as an adolescent, you'll be kinder to yourself. Say, I'm just remodeling, so <laughs> chill out. Or if you're an adult taking care of an adolescent, you'll understand it a very different way, right? you won't freak out. Now, I want to tell you a couple of things related to this that are really important to know. Uh, and then I do want to just mention this essence of adolescence. But I, I don't want to forget this issue. Um, I mentioned that, you know, adolescence is a period of much higher risk. And so we have to understand that. Why is that the case? And to understand that, we have to look at the dopamine system in what are called the reward circuits of the brain. Um, but let me do this, because I'm, I'm noticing the time. And let me just check with your hunger level. Can we go another 15 minutes? Yes. Are you guys OK? Because yeah. I just think it would be better if we cover this, because you'll have more to reflect on. Um, where is, is there an administrator here? Is there any problem with us going even more? Is it OK? Can we even go to one? Go. Is it OK if we go to one? Because let me cover this stuff for you, because then I think you'll have more to chew on at lunch. Okay, so, so here's what we're going to cover now. We're going to cover the dopamine system, which you really need to cover. We're going to cover something called hyper-rational thinking. 
And before we get into that, I want to stick with the pruning and the myelination so you, we can understand in a deep way. So some of the things I'm going to tell you, you guys may already know about, and the adults in the room may be worried about but not realize it was true. Um, and there, there's some very serious issues. Number one, we said preventable accidents or death three times likely in adolescence. That's just a serious issue. And I think there's something we can do to reduce that risk, which we're going to get to before lunch. Number two thing that's a concern is that if a serious psychiatric illness is going to develop, like schizophrenia, or manic depressive illness, or just depression, or addiction, or an eating disorder, it is most likely to happen in adolescence. That's just a fact. And we have to try to understand why. Now, of course, the old story, oh, raging hormones makes it so you go nuts. Well, that's not true. But no one else knew what to say about this. So let me give you a little bit of feeling of the pruning process and what the opportunity you have, whether you're a teacher or a parent or an adolescent, to actually empower yourself and others about this. If I tell you that in this brain, um, let, me, let me go over these functions with you so you understand where, where I'm coming at with this. Look at your prefrontal cortex right here. And we said that it integrates the cortex, the limbic area, the brainstem, the body, and the social world, right? Now, this area gives rise to nine functions I just want to list for you that it's important just to be aware of these functions. And we're going to talk a lot about them after lunch. But just, if you're taking notes, you can write notes, but just get a feeling from this most important thing. The ability to balance emotions is based in this area of the brain. That's allowing emotions to rise up and not be chaotic and just keep them optimally flowing in harmony and not be too depleted so you're depressed. This optimal emotional balance is what this area allows to create because it works closely with the limbic area and the brainstem. So emotional balance. Body regulation, this area balances two branches of the nervous system. The autonomic nervous system has an activating sympathetic branch and a deactivating parasympathetic branch, like brakes and accelerator. And like when you drive a car, you have to balance those two. The same thing is true with the brain. You've got to balance the brake and the accelerator. This is the area that does it. Number three, attuned communication. The ability to tune into yourself with mindful awareness or attuned to others with interpersonal attunement is what allows you to actually have this kind of sense of peace inside of yourself or peace in a relationship. This area allows it. Number four is something called response flexibility. That's a name I made up to just mean how you're flexible and how you respond. It means how you pause before acting. Response flexibility. This area does that. Number five, the ability to soothe fear, to calm yourself down when you're frightened. This area does that. And when I say does it, I mean it is essential for, and if there's an injury to it or if it doesn't work well, these functions don't happen. Number six is where you have insight into yourself, which is basically making what I call a mindset map of me. Where was I in the past? Where am I now? Where am I going in the future? How do I become the active author of my own unfolding story? That's what insight is. Endel Tolving up at, uh, in Toronto calls this mental time travel. And it's what changes 
from childhood to adolescence in a big way. I know that for my own self, that's how I knew I was an adolescent. I started thinking these thoughts about my past and my future that I never thought before, and that's because my prefrontal region was remodeling itself. Okay, so that's um, basically making a mindset map of me. The next thing is empathy. How you understand another person is the way you make a mindset map of you. You literally map out the internal world of someone else. That's empathy. Number eight is a mindset map of we, how you have morality. Thinking about the larger social good, how we're all interconnected, the, not only how you imagine a reason in moral terms, but how you enact moral actions even when you're alone and no one's looking. Because anyone can figure out how to act to impress people. The issue is how do you embody morality to realize this planet is all an interconnected whole. So that's why I call it a mindset map of we. And then finally, there's intuition. This area is very important for taking the signals of the heart and the lungs and the intestines, the internal signals of the body, are a deep source of wisdom. Deep, deep source of wisdom that moves up through various aspects of the spinal cord and the 10th cranial nerve, the vagus nerve, and it comes up to this area. So we gain access to the wisdom of the body through this region. Now I'm giving you this list because what I want to suggest to you is that many disorders in psychiatry are problems with the integrative function in the brain. So this morning I did a webinar to a bunch of therapists in Minnesota, and I was talking to them about a way of reconceptualizing the whole field of mental health as actually, because I don't know if you know this, but in our field, mental health, we don't have a definition of mental health, and we don't have a definition of the mental. So we're kind of <laughs> out of our minds, you know? So part of what I've been doing in that field is actually to offer a definition of the mind, and that's a whole other discussion, but the bottom line is, you can look at when, when a system is not integrated, it actually moves to chaos or rigidity, which explains the entire diagnostic manual of mental disorders. And then, you, I don't mean just the way it's organized, I mean just that the symptoms, the symptoms are chaos or rigidity. And then you can show if you study the brain, like in schizophrenia or manic depressive illness or um, in depression even, and different other disorders, those are disorders where it is impairment integration and disorders which are caused by experience, like abuse and neglect, impairments to integration. Okay, so the bottom line of all that is this. I want you to picture this to explain why adolescence might be a period when psychiatric disorders emerge for the first time. Let's say this area, just to be really kind of simple about it, you need a thousand neurons integrating the prefrontal region with the cortex, the limbic area, the, the, the brainstem and the body, et cetera. Thousand neurons working well, so they coordinate and balance the whole thing. And let's say you're a kid and you've got 1,500, okay? And let's say most kids have 4,000, but you had genetic issues, so you only have 1,500. Or maybe you had abuse in your life, so you have 1,500, whatever the reason, experiential or genetic. But you've got 1,500 and you're a kid and everybody else from most has 4,000. And you need 1,000 for it to work. So you're a kid, are you working fine? Yeah, because you need 1,000, you got 1,500, no problem. Now the natural process, the genetically governed process of pruning happens, where let's just say, to make the numbers easy, in pruning, you're going to cut away 50% of the neurons that are there. So now, what happens? Now you're in trouble, because you've gone from 1,500 to 750, that's not enough. And you develop schizophrenia, or you develop manic depressive, this is just theoretically. 
So one of our thoughts is that the pruning process is going to carve away the neurons because that's what it's all about. But if you've started in childhood, either from genetic causes or epigenetic causes or experiential causes, could be any of those, you're going to reveal the vulnerability. So if that's the case, what can you do? Because not only can you go to 750, but the actual stress created by either your lack of sleep because you have the disorder, because sleep, lack of sleep causes stress, um, or just the psychological stress or the relational stress or whatever, stress is thought to increase pruning. So now you don't only have 750, you go to 500. So one of the thoughts about this, Kiki Chan at Stanford is saying, well, let's give someone vulnerable medications early on because maybe that'll prevent that from happening. And that's actually a reasonable thing to think about in those we know are vulnerable. What I say is, hey, what if you gave practices that we believe grow integrative fibers to everybody? Because we don't know who's got the 1500. We usually don't know. Yeah, there are some families you could say, yeah, there's a life passage of this. But you, usually you don't know. So why not actually give people integrative practices? And that's what you have in the book. Those mindset practices all are, science suggests they're going to grow the integrative fibers of the brain. And do it not as a matter of treatment. Do it as a matter of strengthening everybody's brain. It's like, why wait to get a cavity? Why not brush your teeth? You know what I mean? Seriously, what's wrong with brushing your teeth? These exercises take like very little time. Temp well, there's a hierarchy you need, but what's higher in the hierarchy of needs once we say it before what it is of taking care of your brain? I mean, if you think about it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Well, there's all sorts of, re of course, there's lots of reasons. Sure, there's lots of stresses, we're under lots of stresses, but I, I think we can take a different kind of attitude, which is everyone has a birthright for health. And if integration is health, integration should become the priority for what we do. You know, one way of developing this integrative capacity is through these mindfulness practices. Some of them are in the mindset thing, uh, the mindset skills, um, and that's one way of growing these integrative fibers. So this is just to say that even though we're saying there's risk, there's reason to believe you could do interventions that might be preventative in those at risk. And for those not at risk, it's only promoting health. You're going to increase telomerase levels, uh, you know, so you maintain and repair the ends of your chromosomes. There's even some studies that show, that came out in the, um, recently, that show what you do with your mind can actually change the epigenetic control of the prevention of disease. So we have, to, we have to really alter our priorities because this is not something that costs anything. That's the amazing thing. It's not like we're saying, here, get a gadget that costs $5,000. No, it's just, it's, just it's, a, it's a habit of life. So this is why I want you to think about how do we actually change the cultural conversation to get people to do this. So, so this is the one thing about the risk. Now let's go through the, the brain understanding of the risks. So we haven't talked about yet of of preventable accidents that injure the body or cause death to self or others. So I'll use this, uh, I'll use one example of, um, 
I, I, you know, when you make up names in books, you, it's hard to remember the name you made up. There's a, I think it's, because I know the actual person's name, but I think I use the name Katie. What's the name of the, the anyone read the book yet? The, the young woman who brings all the alcohol to the party. What do I call her in the book? Does anyone remember? Oh, let's call her Katie. It may not be that. It's a made up name, so it doesn't matter. So, what's that? The first one invited. So, so uh, this is the issue. Katie decides to, she's 17, she's starting her senior year at school. She decides to bring um, a whole bunch of alcohol to, is it Katie? Okay, thank you. So she, Katie decides to bring a whole bunch of alcohol to uh, a school party before the beginning of her senior year in a school where they have a zero tolerance for alcohol. And she thinks this is a really cool idea, so she figures out a way, even though she's 17, to get the alcohol. She plans it over several weeks. And, uh, and then she brings the alcohol, and this is her best friend's house. So she gets her best friend drunk. She gets all of her best friend's friends drunk. And what I didn't tell you is that her best friend's father was the head of the school, who was at the party. So what do you think happened to Katie? Expelled. She's expelled from school, and that's when I first meet her. And I asked her, you know, what, what, what were you thinking when you, like, planned this thing? And she goes, well, you know, I am a teenager, um, she said, as her first line of reasoning. I said, okay, well, I don't know what that means exactly. She said, well, I thought it would be a great story to tell my grandchildren, which is kind of appealing, you know. She's thinking ahead to her grandchildren's well-being. So one of the myths that's out there is that adolescents do things because of impulsive behavior. And while the beginning of adolescence is true, they are impulsive, the fact is that as adolescents progress, they become less impulsive. But the risk is still there. So what's going on? What is going on? This is a really bright, motivated person who loved her school, loved her friends. What, why would someone do this? Now, this is why parents, you can understand, say, I don't understand, because they don't understand. So let's look at the brain so we see if we can understand this. There are two things we're going to look at. We're going to look at what's called the reward circuitry of the brain. And we're going to look at the appraisal circuitry of the brain in the limbic area. The reward circuitry kind of goes up and down. It influences the brain stem. It influences the limbic area. It influences the cortex. And its, its main chemical is dopamine. And what we need to know about dopamine, have you guys heard about dopamine? Yeah. So dopamine, you know, when you do something rewarding, you know, like you meet with a friend or you work hard at something or you, you try something new, dopamine is secreted, and inside you get the subjective feeling like that was really worth doing. So it's pretty, pretty nice. It drives you to do new things. The studies suggest, various studies suggest, two things happen with dopamine in the reward circuits of the adolescent brain that are different from a child and different from an adult. And I want you to think about this, why nature would do this. Nature has dropped the baseline levels of dopamine and has raised the release levels of dopamine. Now, you need to know that one of the main things that releases dopamine is novelty. So what would this drop in baseline level of dopamine and rise in release levels do to the experience of being an adolescent? What's that? Well, you want to seek dopamine. You've got to do something to seek dopamine. And novelty, 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 doing something new, doing something. It would make you restless with the familiar. 
It would make you bored with the certain, right? So this is nature's way of dealing with the issue of how do you get out of the familiar, certain, and safe issue, we haven't dealt with the safety quite yet, of the home. So a drop makes you a little ootsie, you can feel a restless, you can feel like out of sorts, things aren't really right, but when you do things like meet with your friends, do new things, it releases the dopamine. So that's one thing. The next thing is the appraisal system. The appraisal system changes in a really interesting and significant way. It, the appraisal system is always weighing, should I do something or not? Should I pay attention to something? Should I act in a certain way? That's what the appraisal system is all about. And the appraisal system, of course, weighs, I should do it for this reason, I should not do it for this reason. And it weighs them, right? So the way to think about what happens to the appraisal system is this, if you watch up here. It goes like this. Here's the cons and here's the pros of doing something. And just in terms of the attention it pays, it goes like this. Now, I don't know what to call that, but the scientists call this hyper-rational thinking. So you focus in a rational way of, oh, I have a new car. And, you know, I was playing this video game yesterday, and I drove the car about 100 miles an hour in the video game. It was so much fun. But here's an actual car. It might be so cool to drive this car down my surface street at about 100 miles an hour. Now, you can kind of understand the pros of that. But what are the cons of that? You could kill someone or someone else. So when our son was one, I was playing with him with these pebbles he liked to play with. And um, it was a little street. We had an apartment on a small street, very quiet street. And cars were packed in all the streets. And it was really weird. And that night I got a call that my favorite teacher in my psychiatry program was run over and killed by a 19-year-old driving 95 miles an hour on a street near our house, near our apartment. And I thought to myself, what happened? Why would someone do that? And it turns out the kid who survived was not drunk. And in fact, two months earlier, he had done the exact same thing, only crashed into a tree, was arrested, and his parents bought him another sports car, and he went out and just did it again. Only this time, sadly, my teacher went in his way. Now, it's terrible for my teacher, terrible for his family, terrible for the, the profession, because he was a wonderful teacher, but it's also terrible for this 19-year-old, right? Now, apparently, this was not an impulsive act. Now, he did have his peers around, and your behavior gets intensified in terms of this balance if you think you can do something to impress your peers. Like with Katie, she thought her peers would think she was the bomb if she could get everybody drunk at the headmaster's house, which she did, and that was the last time she could do that. Um, so, so what's going on there with this skew? Why would nature de-emphasize the downside of its decision and way overemphasize the upside? Rites of passage gets you out of the house. How else are you going to do the, the unsafe thing of leaving home? Right? Now, we need to understand that. So there's, there's certain risks, obviously. Sadly, my teacher's dead because of this skew in the evaluative circuits of that 19-year-old's brain. He could have been intoxicated because, as you probably know, another risk of this dopamine issue is that another thing that releases dopamine are addictive behaviors or addictive substances like alcohol. So if you're going to get addicted to something, it's most likely to happen in adolescence, likely because of this dopamine issue and all sorts of genetic and epigenetic changes that are happening in adolescence too. Um, but the issue here is that we need to understand these mechanisms 
so that how can we go around it? So people, for example, knowing the kids got addicted, let's say, to cigarette smoking, it's likely to happen in adolescence, they said, let's stop kids from being addicted by, let's inform them. They probably don't know cigarettes cause lung disease and all sorts of physiological problems and all sorts of things that could kill you. So they tried to inform them. And you, what did they discover? They discovered adolescents are informed about danger. They know about danger. So informing them actually doesn't do much. You can still try, but it doesn't do much. So then what they do? They tried to scare them. Now, if your brain is programmed to push against what parents or parent figures are telling you, if a parent tells you don't do something because you'd be scared of it, what are you going to do? Ignore it, right? Or do the opposite. So that didn't work. Scaring adults, they put big figures of graveyards and lungs full of cancer and yeah, so who cares, right? <laughs> so what could you do if you were developing an ad campaign to try to, in the culture, to try to reduce the addiction to cigarette smoking that the cigarette companies, of course, you know, really like because it gets them lots of money for the rest of that kid's life. They're likely to keep on smoking and paying money to cigarette company. So you can make it look uncool, but you know, there's too many things out there that make it look cool, so that didn't, that didn't work. So here's what they decided to do. If the adolescent brain is really about creating a new world, pushing against the adult world, because that's basically what it's about. It's not just about the individual leaving home. The other thing that we'll think about at lunch is that the way the adolescent is moving away from adults is actually to get ready to create a whole new world. That, and this is way oversimplification, but let's just start with that, and then we can carve away the spe specifics. You know, childhood, you sponge in the world of adults. When you're an adult, you find out where you are in culture and where you are in society, what your job will be, how you set up a home, what you can do with your family. You kind of settle into the status quo, and you want to keep things the way they are, and you're exhausted by the end of the day. And, you, you know, that's basically it, right? <laughs> But the world is forever changing. Everyone's going, yeah, for sure. In fact, I'm kind of tired now. The, the world is forever changing. The world is forever changing. If our species is going to adapt to an ever-changing world, it is not going to be the adults who do it. The major innovations in technology, in science, in art, and music come primarily from an adolescent mind. It is the adolescent mind that has allowed our human species, our human family, to adapt to this ever-changing world. They are the most courageous and creative beings on the planet. And we disempower them, we insult them, we stick them in these strange schools where we act like they're children. I'm serious. And, you know, this is a time of rethinking this because everyone can win if we capitalize on their courage and creativity. So part of the skew is to say, you know, I'm going to go for it. So anyway, to figure out the figure of the cigarette thing, what they did was they said, if really adolescence is about creating a new world and pushing against adults, let's tell those adolescents the truth. And this is what they did. They said, do you know that the cigarette companies figured out that your brain is most likely to get addicted and they are ripping you off by stealing your money by manipulating you? Oh, my God. They had a huge decrease in cigarette smoking. I'm not going to let those adults do that to me. It was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. So that's the addiction story. Let's finish up before lunch with looking at, okay, if this is all the story of you've got hyper-rational thinking that focuses on the upside of a decision and, 
and you have dopamine pushing you for novelty, the brain is pruning itself, and so, okay, that explains the risk. What can you do to actually decrease that risk? So one of the things I teach in the Brainstorm book is that if adolescents are given the opportunity to develop an internal compass, to know what they're feeling inside of themselves, that there are processors in the intestine, literally. You have a brain in your intestine, and you have a brain in your heart. No, I'm not joking about this. Literally, there are networks of neurons around your intestines, and you have networks of neurons in your heart that are embedding your positive values and things. I'll bet you if that 19-year-old who ended up running over my professor had been given an internal compass, a set of mindset skills to know their own mind, and said, you know something, I would love to drive this new sports car 95 miles an hour down Sunset Boulevard. That sounds cool. You know, my gut is telling me there's something about that that doesn't feel right. Not my mom is telling me don't do it, or the police are telling me don't do it. My gut, my own gut, is saying don't do that. My heart is saying, Something about that doesn't feel right. I don't even know what, but you know something? I don't think I'll do it. And if those parents had been aware of all this stuff, maybe they could have said, this kid has a need for speed. Let's have him go to a race car place and learn to drive a race car or be a skier or whatever he's going to do if he needs to go fast. But his gut would tell him not to drive like that. And my teacher would still be alive today. So I felt, in terms of how we decided to raise our kids and now in the Brainstorm book, how about if we give people the empowerment of developing their own internal access to the wisdom of the body that is this deep source of positive values that, for the most part, families don't know how to do it and schools don't have the time to do it or maybe even the skills to do it? What if we did that? So there is an essence to adolescence that I'm going to summarize for you and we're going to, we're going to go through it step by step that I'd like to close with before we go to lunch. That is a really amazing set of findings. If you said, okay, I got it, Dan. The brain is remodeling itself, and I can do something about that to optimize the integration that's developing when I'm an adolescent. And that's absolutely true. And these mindset skills let you do that. What's the essence of these changes of remodeling? And I'm writing this out, and those of you who've read my other books know I'm kind of a, I have a problem. It's kind of a serious problem, actually. I am profoundly addicted to acronyms. I even wrote a whole book once. The whole book was an acronym. It was strange. An acronym you know, is where the, the, the letters spell the thing you're trying to talk about. So when you look at the, the essential features of the changes in the adolescent brain, it turns out that if you work them out and spell them a certain way, it spells the word essence itself. So let's go over it by looking at our brain, and then we'll close with that. We mentioned already that there's an emotional spark that the body, the brainstem, and the limbic area, the source of emotion, push upward on the cortex where you reason and think more than in childhood and more than adulthood. What's the downside of that? What's the upside? The downside is you can feel irritable, moody, uncertain because your emotions are affecting you more. What's the upside? Life has more vitality and energy. Emotion evokes motion. It gets you out and doing things. It makes life worth living. So there's an upside and downside. The key is we can actually teach people to optimize the emotional spark. That's number one, ES. What's SE? SE is social engagement. You know, as we mentioned, you're pushing away from parents, not completely, but you're pushing away from them. You're not putting them in the toilet. You're pushing away from them, and you're moving toward peers. What's the downside of that? What's the upside? 
We said the reason for this is it gets you ready to leave home, but what's the downside of that? There, you could be influenced, and if your peers have a lot of negative things going on, to be a member of a peer group for a mammal in terms of adolescence means a matter of life and death. And so if those peers are a negative influence, you, know, you may sacrifice your own values in order to try to be a member of that group. That's a serious problem. That's a huge problem. But what's the upside is you learn social skills. You learn how to develop uh, you know, what's going on, right? And you can survive. Yeah, that's and you survive. Absolutely. It's a, literally a matter of life and death. Now, the more subtle thing is if your kid goes to you and says, I have to have that shoe or I have to go to that party and they feel like it's life and death. As a parent, rather than you minimizing that, recognize in their brain, it's a their brainstem is saying this is life and death. Being a member of this group is life and death. Now, you may not have to buy that shoe or let them go to the party, but you can talk to them and respect the internal sensation that it is a matter of life and death. Okay, so that's social engagement. What's the N? N is novelty. The, these changes in the adolescent brain are a push toward novelty. And that's a good thing, right? But what's the downside? The danger, right? And the other downside is things feel like you, you can't just be resting on what's happening. You always want something new. The upside is you want something new. You've tried new things. You're willing to go out there and experience the unfamiliar, the uncertain. And then finally, CE. CE, that spells essence, emotional spark, social engagement, novelty, is creative explorations. The adolescent brain is designed to push against the status quo that the parents have handed them, that the teachers have handed them. And that's a good thing. Now, what's the downside of that? Is, is you can feel disoriented. You can feel like, wow, I, I thought the world was something I could rely on, what the adults were giving me. Now I question everything, I doubt everything, I feel lost. So you can see identity confusion. You can say, what, what, what's going on? You know? The upside of creative explorations is, as I mentioned, every major innovation in science, technology, art, and music comes from adolescence. Now, here's the thing I'd like you to reflect on, then we're going to stop for lunch. Two things. One, it turns out if you want to keep your brain growing well as an adult and pick the studies of neuroplasticity, how the brain changes in response to experience, the top four things you would pick to keep your brain young are have emotional spark, have social engagement, have novelty, and have creative explorations. The essence of adolescence is the crucial essence of adulthood. And yet, how many adults do we know who've actually lost their essence and when I ask adolescents, let me ask you guys, if, if you were a parent who've lost your adolescence, it actually is the essence of living a good life, but you've lost it, and your child is now becoming an adolescent, has got it, how would you feel toward your adolescent? Jealous. Jealous. Oh. When, I, when, I, when I first started writing that, I said, oh my God, I better stop writing this book, because this could create serious problems, right? So I had to very gently say to the adult, look, if you're jealous of your adolescent, they can actually teach you something. They can remind you how to live with this essence. So that's the idea of this cultural change, that we can actually empower not just adolescents, which we can. This totally changes the whole story. 
we can actually change how we approach it as adults. And the last thing, and the second thing I want to tell you about is school. When I've spoken at middle schools and high schools, and I've said, if you were going to design a curriculum around the essence, it would look very different than it does. So I just want you to reflect on this possibility, that you could say to kids who start in sixth grade middle school, you say, look, we're not going to do the same old, same old anymore because you're not a child anymore. You're an adolescent. We respect your essence. So here's what we're going to do. We're consultants for you. We can be mentors to you. We can just be available to you to help find information. We're going to pick the top seven problems in the world, sustainability issues, climate change issues, issues about violence, issues about trauma in cultures, issues about disenfranchising people, issues about famine, issues about you know, pollution, issues about unhealthy food and water and air. I mean, that's, that's more than seven, but there's a lot of, let's pick them out. And you find where your passion is. So that's the emotional spark part. Your passion will drive, drive you. That's great. Next thing, social engagement. How about if we let you collaborate with each other, which you're actually born to do, instead of getting you to compete with each other to get the best SAT score, to be at the best school, because college, so you can do the best graveyard. <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, that's, that, that's where we're at in the school. Like, you know, it's like, I think the film was created up here, right? The race to nowhere, literally. Let me jump in the grave, long like that. It's like nutty, but everyone's living like that. You go all around this country, you say, how are you feeling? I say the islands, they go, I'm stressed out on my mind. I say, what are you stressed about? I gotta get the SAT score to get like this. Why? Why do you have to do that, you know? So what if we took the collaborative nature that's in social engagement and said, okay, you wanna compete with something? Let's compete with the world's problems in a collaborative way. So when you beat the enemy, everybody wins. What if we framed it like that? And then the novelty. What if you send the curriculum and you said, okay, we're gonna approach these issues in school in a new way. Because look, we didn't figure it out as adults. We're handing you a world that you know is falling apart. And it is, and I've talked to historians about this because I always feel like I'm, I always doubt everything. So I said, it's always been like this. They go, no, it actually hasn't always been like this. Oh, come on, it's gonna all get better. No, well, it may get better, but it may not. We don't know, it hasn't been like this before. Things are changing so, so, so fast. So with the novelty, we, we allow kids to find a new way, the adolescents to find a new way. And the creative exploration part, I will bet you, if we tap into the incredible courage and creativity of the adolescents, collaboratively working together by being fueled by their passion, the opportunity to find solutions to some of the world's most challenging problems is really there. It's a potential that's there. And what I'd like you to think about at lunch is how can you participate empowering yourself with your own inner life, if you're an adult, reviving your inner adolescent, reviving this essence in you, if your adolescent's thinking how we can do this together. And so that when we think about this then, we'll come back at lunch, how do you actually take this possibility of doing the internal work, your relational work, but changing the cultural conversation around adolescence to really tap into its full courage and creativity. So enjoy your lunch. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.